Welcome back to Speaking of Wounds, a podcast by the Wound Care Learning Network. Today we have Elizabeth Faust, Dr. Monique Avner, and Angela Sonnen, who are going to discuss COVID-19 studies and treatment plans that they've been working on. Thank you for joining us. Liz, you may begin. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Faust. I am a nurse practitioner and wound ostomy continence specialist for Tower Health System in West Reading, Pennsylvania. I'm here today to talk to you about uh, how COVID has affected our practices across an entire healthcare system. My role at Tower Health is that of um, standardizing the practices of WOCN across the system and also um, implementing appropriate education and implementation of supplies across the system, policy management, et cetera. How COVID has affected my practice is a year ago, I covered one hospital. It was a level one trauma center, magnet certified in uh, West Reading, Pennsylvania. I had been there for nine years. Since March, I've covered uh, three other hospitals. And then officially in August, I started covering the entire system, which includes seven hospitals. So we've been mobilized across the system to help cover the needs. Additionally, in our second surge here, we've seen that our uh, administrative staff and our clinicians that have not been at bedside have come back to bedside to do something that we call helping hands. One of the biggest things that I've done to help with the COVID surge across the system is develop guidelines and policies around treating COVID positive patients. So there's very unique needs in the acute care setting of the COVID population, particularly in the setting of acute respiratory distress syndrome. There's excellent literature out there that discusses the role of proning these patients with mechanical um, ventilation. Historically, if a patient was prone due to to acute respiratory distress syndrome, we would use a bed called a rotaprone bed. Well, during the March outbreak of COVID, all of the rotaprone beds were unavailable because they had all been launched up to New York, which was one of the primary hubs. So our staff was left with Um, manually proning patients for the first time probably in their nursing career. We evaluated multiple products and um, multiple practices to evaluate what was the best practice to keep our patients safe and prevent any, um, any events that were unwanted. So things like pressure injuries, obviously, accidental extubations, Um, dislodgement of feeding tubes, aspiration, things like that. There's um, a higher incidence of pressure injuries in patients who are prone, but we found a good system um, and we did a lot of education to help with that. And so we've discovered that within our acute care setting in the ICU, Uh, The use of manual proning was done successfully with preventative uh, silicone foam border dressings um, on the knees, on the shoulders, on 
the breasts of males and females um, on the trochanters and on the um, dorsal foot. We found a system where we would uh, prone the patient and use an air fluidized positioner for the face to help offload the bony prominences of the face, which is often the most frequent area for, um, for pressure injury development. Uh, a recent article by the PA Safety Authority that came out showed that about half of the pressure injuries reported in Pennsylvania in the last 10 months related to proning positioning have been on the face. We also developed some educational guidelines for our respiratory therapist friends who um, helped with the um, Q2 hour turns of the patient, um, head turns, I should say, um, and utilizing either special taping technique or the use of a special um, ET tube holder for proning specifically. Additionally, I was also tasked uh, by our safety department to help provide some skincare guidelines around the practice of wearing N95 respirators for extended periods of time and preventing skin breakdown in our healthcare workers. Um, that information came out in March and April and um, it showed the use of both skin protectants and a hydrocolloid dressing over the nasal bridge to help prevent any skin care um, or skin breakdown in the healthcare provider population. Additionally, in the acute care population, we're seeing an increase in um, thrombocytopedic events so that there's either um, purple discoloration, COVID toes, uh, lots of confusion with deep tissue injuries as well. So the WOCN team has been employed to really differentiate what the etiology of kind of these mysterious purple wounds are so that clinicians are appropriately documenting and preventing um, in, in these cases. I know it takes an entire system um, and we also have issues in the acute care system, such as not being able to take patients to the operating room because of limited OR slots, trying to decrease our elective operations, so potentially limb salvaging procedures have been delayed in an effort to keep patients out of the hospital. We have televisits where potentially debridement isn't an option. And the transition of care can sometimes be slower due to the decreased number of patients that we're able to see at this juncture. I know we've all collaborated as a team and our outpatient wound care center, we're very lucky to have a nice handoff with them and be able to collaborate some of those conversations. Thank you. Can I ask Liz a question? Seeing a lot more pressure ulcer injuries for uh, people who are staying. Are you seeing any more coming in just who maybe are in nursing homes, but they don't have COVID, but because of what's happening with COVID, they're not getting the uh, immediate attention as they should. Have you noticed that at all? Yeah. yeah so that's a great point. And I'll, uh, I'll state it here. Additionally, um, due to the fact that the staff is one burnout and there's increased 
demands on the staff, increased census, and a variety of other issues, we've been seeing uh, across the board, and as reported in NDNQI, that there's an increase in our happy rate uh, across the country, um, not directly related to COVID, but seen in a parallel with the COVID surges. I've just noticed, I've noticed it here, and I'm still so new to the area. I don't know from where these people are coming, so I really wouldn't, I'm just going to say, at least at this facility, an outpatient center, I'm seeing that happen. And patients are actually saying, you know, I'm not, I, I don't want to disparage any nursing home by saying it, but they, they are in their homes and they're not getting out, so they're not getting up, so... Hi, my name is Angela Sonnen. I am a nurse practitioner in the Tower Health Hematology Oncology Practice at Reading Hospital. I am the Director of Clinical Practice, and I'm going to talk about some key ways that um, COVID has impacted our hematology oncology practice, specifically starting from um, when COVID had first hit roughly around March uh, 2020, we took a very protective and defensive approach um, to our care. We pretty much at that point had um, limited our clinic visits. We were trying to keep our patients out in order to protect them. Um, we did still see them virtually. We did a lot of telephone visits. Um, and then we split our team being our um, provider team into like an A and a B team and rotated those teams each week. Um, in doing so, we found that this eased some patients' anxiety, but increased other patients' anxieties. Um, so we continued to think of ways to meet our patients' needs and um, take care of them as best we could while protecting them. We did some innovative things at first, um, and some things that I think we may continue in, um, I believe it was June of 2016, our patients were starting to feel a little um, less anxious about coming out of their house, but they were still very concerned about coming into the hospital proper. So patients that were receiving um, non-chemotherapeutic type treatments, things such as injections, lab draws, port maintenance, um, pump disconnects, and even growth factor support, we had developed a curbside care program. And what that entailed was the patients would come into the parking garage into a designated parking area that was secluded and secured. And we would deliver those types of therapies to the patients from the comfort and safety of their vehicle. So our staff and the patients still wore proper PPE, um, including masks, uh, but they could do it from the comfort of their home and this really eased their anxiety about coming into the hospital. So that was something we did early on. Um, but as COVID had continued to kind of wane a little bit over the summer and then really spike this past fall with the second surge, um, we have become very innovative and were tasked after the FDA had approved 
the monoclonal antibodies for use for COVID positive patients. So we were tasked to initiate a unit to deliver the monoclonal antibodies, which are geared at keeping COVID positive patients, giving them a monoclonal antibody, which pretty much neutralizes the, it's a neutralizing antibody drug. And the theory is that it, it creates these, well, it contains man-made antibodies that are similar to the antibodies of patients who recover from um, COVID-19. And the science behind it is that these antibodies help limit the amount of virus in um, the COVID positive patient's body. So in, I think it was mid-November, we were tasked with developing this unit. And by November 23rd, exactly 10 days after our task, we were infusing our first patient with the monoclonal antibody. We have banlamivimab available to us, and there is also Regeneron available to us to give to patients. So the theory is that this reduces incidence of um, hospitalizations in COVID-positive patients. And what we have, um, what we have identified in our area is that we have actually had a 67% reduction of admissions um, of patients with COVID to the hospital that we have administered these to. To date, we have given over 570 um, infusions. And the reason our area was tasked with developing this process is these monoclonal antibodies need to be um, delivered by chemotherapy trained nurses. Um, just for safe handling, for the reactions that patients can have when you're infusing a monoclonal antibody, and then for the post monitoring. So the unit that we had used was a former surgery center unit. We have seven chairs available to us. Um, we have two nurses and sometimes three up there treating patients from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. seven days a week. So the patients, um, we have worked very closely with our ED peers to determine patient eligibility. Um, there is eligibility criteria that they need to meet, including being over 65 years of age or being under 65 years of age with significant comorbidities. Things such as uh, obesity, hypertension, respiratory illnesses, um, diabetes is another. I believe I'm missing one, but um, there's definite uh, eligibility criteria. So a majority of our patients accept this treatment. I think we have a pretty much ex about an 80% acceptance rate to the patients it is offered to. So this has been um, greatly successful in our area and quite a heavy lift because many other health systems are unable to um, even offer this therapy because of the resources and the, uh, I guess the skill that is needed to administer this antibody. 
So the process for receiving the monoclonal antibody is very, um, it's very simple. As a patient tests positive, they are either referred um, by the urgent care that has tested the patient. They are, they have been phenomenal at making referrals, all of the urgent care physicians. Um, our emergency physicians are also making referrals if the patients do get into the emergency department and test positive and then are released. And as well as patients who um, just go for testing on their own accord, they will then contact their primary care provider. So um, the referral process is the referral is placed in our electronic medical record and it drops into a, an order set, um, well, like an order um, area that our ED advanced practice uh, practitioner is grabbing that order, uh, calling the patient, checking their eligibility, and ex um, explaining some of the side effects that can occur and what the monoclonal antibody can do for them. And then he um, places an order and it falls into the infusion center's work queue and we call the patients and get them scheduled. Our patients are scheduled within 24 to 48 hours of us receiving the referral. They must have had symptom onset 10 days. Um, they must be treated with a monoclonal antibody within 10 days of their symptom onset, not 10 days of their positive test, but 10 days of their symptom onset. Um, and we have not had, I don't believe we have had any patients fall out of that window um, that have gotten to us for scheduling. If we in the infusion center get a patient that is close to um, falling, like falling out of that time frame, we are squeezing them in pretty much the same day to get them treated. So they come into the infusion center. This is an outpatient therapy. Um, the patients actually cannot be hospitalized to receive um, the Banlam Ipimab or the Regeneron product. They must be an outpatient. So they come into a closed corridor um, that directs them directly upstairs to our infusion center. They come in, they have an IV placed, um, they get a set of vital signs. They get vital signs every 15 minutes while the infusion is going. And then they are monitored for one hour after the infusion. The infusion itself takes an hour. So the total time that they spend with us is roughly two and a half hours between registration to disconnect and discharge. The patients sit upstairs with us in one of those seven chairs and they are monitored by the nurses. Um, and it is a closed, like I said, a closed unit to the rest of the hospital. So um, some of the things that we're monitoring for as the infusion is um, being administered could be hypotension, um, bradycardia, and sometimes dizziness. We have not had we have had maybe a handful of patients that have experienced one of those three um, side effects, I guess you could, they're, they're just kind of like side effects to the drug itself. Um, 
but really for the most part of the 570 that we have given, I think we maybe sent a, uh, probably five patients to the emergency department. And I would say three of those five were sent to the emergency department before they even ever received the monoclonal antibody. And they were sent because they came in unstable. I think what we, what we have found is some of these patients are going to rapid testing sites and there isn't a physician or an advanced practice provider who is even looking at this patient or doing a set of vitals. They may just be going through a rapid testing. And then by the time they get to us, the main thing that we're finding is that patients um, have SATs that are 90 or less. Those are the patients that alert us that they're too unstable to be treating in the outpatient setting and we direct them to the emergency department. But otherwise, we're treating these patients, they're going home, we do a 24-hour uh, follow-up phone call and many of the patients are telling us they already feel a little better. They are either less tired, have reduction in symptoms. Um, I think that's, I mean, those are the two things they're reporting. Some patients are like, well, I think I feel a little bit better, but I'm not sure. So, um, but for the most part, our patients are feeling better and not calling us days later saying that they're still having terrible symptoms or still feeling as they did when they were diagnosed. Hello, I'm Dr. Monique Abner. I am a board certified plastic surgeon and a wound care physician working at Tower Health in the wound care department with our hyperbaric uh, treatment center as well. So I, I've been asked to share my thoughts with regard to how COVID is affecting our outpatient wound care center and also to discuss an IRB project that I'm working on as well. So firstly, I would say that with regard to being in a wound care center and being on the front line, by no means is it comparable to the ER physicians or intensivists, but nonetheless, we are seeing patients who have to be seen and not necessarily via telemed. I know that some patients can stay at home and have their physicians interact with them to check on their status. However, if you are a patient that has a wound and whether it's because you need debridement or a compression wrap application, or if you need hyperbaric oxygen therapy treatments, you have to physically be seen. So nonetheless, and being quite aware of that, we have developed some means to keep the patient safe and to keep the workers in the wound care safe as well. So just like many offices, we will pre-screen patients by virtue of history taking, asking if they've been exposed. And then we, again, will use the necessary things to distance ourselves. Everyone is wearing masks and the like to keep patients safe. We have noticed that patients do have some anxiety with regard to COVID. We try to space out the appointments so that they are not sitting in the waiting room and we bring patients into the room right away. And of course, uh, wipe the wounds, the rooms down after the patients have been seen. And all of this is important because 
not just in the wound care center, but probably in other areas as well, due to the high anxiety of some of our elderly patients with regard to COVID, they may not be seeking their medical attention in a timely fashion. And some patients will have not only a delay in treatment, but in some cases, a delay in diagnosis. So I think it's really important to be able to be facile with the manner by which you handle these patients and address their concerns. Other things that are noteworthy are that the patients I've seen seem to have a higher level of depressive mood and as well, because they are not able to go outside as much, I'm seeing an increase in those pressure ulcer injuries as well, especially on the ischial tuberosities because the patients say to me, well, I'm just not getting up. I'm not going anywhere. So it's, it's an interesting, interesting occurrence that's happening. So that's my little take on what I see in the outpatient wound care center. Now, one of the reasons that I was, that I was also asked to speak is because of an institutional review board proposal that I presented to the IRB team in May of last year. And essentially, I wanted to look at what could be done to deal with this virus and what could be done for patients who are ambulatory and COVID positive. And I remembered as a general surgery resident way, way back when they swabbed our noses to see if we were carriers for MRSA. And I then realized as a surgeon that we were asked to put Bactroban in the noses of our patients to decrease surgical site infections. So when I was thinking about the coronavirus and being aware that this virus has a proclivity for the ACE2 receptor cell of the nasal epithelium, I thought, well, what if we could deliver a substance that could have antiviral properties to inactivate this virus and see if we could make a difference with regard to the impact that it may have. We know that this world is suffering from the coronavirus pandemic and the primary mode of viral transmission has been the respiratory droplet. And this is one of the reasons why we've been asked to socially distance and wear masks, but masks don't inactivate the virus. And I think it's wonderful that we have monoclonal antibodies and the vaccines, but you know, we, we still need to do something, I felt, to address the actual viral particle in that nasal epithelium. So what I decided to do <clears throat> was think about the process of viral adsorption, the virus and its proclivity for the cells, its tendency to, by virtue of the M spike protein, to attach and thereafter elicit an immune response. I started thinking, okay, well, there's clearly a viral load and the subsequent immune response. What if we could do something that might mitigate the progression of clinical disease by addressing the presence of this virus? So the hypothesis of my investigation was to see what the effects of nasal lavage with a hypochlorous acid would play in the role of the ambulatory COVID positive patient. Could this relieve the symptoms that the patient has for those who do have symptoms? Could it possibly mitigate the clinical progression? 
and I could ex extrapolate and think, wow, would it therefore decrease viral shedding? Could it decrease viral load? Could it decrease a patient's um, tendency to be infectious? These are all hypothetical things because I can't really assess that. But what I can assess are the first primary and secondary objectives, which is to see if we can get compliance with the use of a device and also to see if the symptoms are relieved and if we could mitigate clinical progression. So what I am asking patients to do for those who do test positive for the COVID virus is they would then become eligible to enroll in the study. They would use a neti pot and irrigate their noses once a day for 10 days. 10 days because that's the day of their isolation and quarantine. Once a day because I think after having done it myself, it really causes a lot of secretions and you have to blow your nose a lot and I didn't want the patients to have to do this right before they go to bed. I know that historically there have been studies that show that the use of nasal irrigation has relieved symptoms of the common cold. And in 2018, there were studies that were done in the UK, which actually demonstrated antiviral innate immune responses that were augmented by the presence of the chloride ion, which caused an intracellular increase of the hypochlorous acid levels. And we know that hypochlorous acid is naturally produced by our activated neutrophils during that oxidative burst phase of um, the response to uh, being affected by a foreign object. We, we're familiar with the cellular and humoral responses that our body has to injury. We're familiar with that even in the wound model when we have the platelets and the neutrophils and the macrophages and the humoral response as well with the release of the growth factors and cytokines. So similarly, there are cellular and humoral responses to viral exposure. So I thought the use of hypochlorous acid could potentially be something that would not only directly inactivate the virus, but also potentially stimulate that intracellular hypochlorous acid production as well. So I'm using Vosh wound solution that is being provided courtesy of Ergo Medical North America and neti pots being provided by Nelly Med. And the patient gets the kit and is able to do this for 10 days. They fill out a survey after their 10 days stating what their clinical symptoms are and are not. They make comments with regard to the ease of using the neti pot the ease of using the solution. And also we're able to see in general what the compliance is. So this is really a feasibility study to render the ability to use this model as a potential use to help fight this pandemic. Um, it seems when I think about it to simply and maybe simplistically think, oh, well, yeah, let's 
rinse this virus out of here. But I, I realize the limitations of the study because this nasal rinse doesn't go necessarily all the way back to the nasopharynx. And also there's so much variety in terms of the degree to which patients can respond to the virus because it's not just viral load, but as Angie will say because of what her experience is and then what Liz has noted as well, a lot has to do with the individual's immunity. So I think it's a wonderful balance, multimodal if you will, of understanding viral load and understanding the importance of containment with regard to wearing masks and socially distancing, and then unquestionably recognizing the importance and the impact of the use of monoclonal antibodies for the outpatient um, individual who fits the criteria, and then the benefit of having nationwide, worldwide vaccination. So one, one point that I do want to make, and why I think that Vosh wound solution is a good choice is because as an antiseptic, it will inactivate viruses. We know that it's bactericidal and virucidal. In 1997, the FDA did put out a cautionary notice because of individuals who, due to ritual ablution, used water that was contaminated and subsequently developed brain abscesses. The benefit, again, of using the Vosh with its proprietary blend and ingredient of hypochlorous acid is that I feel more comfortable using this solution and knowing that the safety protocol with its use have been clearly demonstrated thus far with my study. That's what I'm doing here in my spare time. <laughs> as a wound care physician with my study. So thank you for listening. And that concludes this episode of Speaking of Wounds. Thank you for a great discussion, and we'd love to talk more, but we are out of time. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in, and be sure to check out woundcarelearningnetwork.com for more podcasts, articles, and videos on various topics in wound care. Also, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you regularly listen to your podcasts. We hope that you tune in to our next episode on Speaking of Wounds, and thank you for listening.